because we got the alternative energy right. molecular free autonomy and welcome to the radioactive show produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the community radio network hello and welcome to the radioactive show produced on the unceded Wurundjeri lands at 3CR in Nam Melbourne and brought to you with the support of ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth. My name is AC, and on today's show I want to share recordings from two special meetings that took place in the first week of December. Now these aren't big meetings, but they are both significant. Scott Ludlam, former federal senator and anti-nuclear activist, met up with Andy Payne, peace activist and sometimes journalist, on Arundelland in Alice Springs. They discuss Scott's experience of being a senator and his views on politics. Meanwhile, back here in Melbourne, students from Fukushima met with a group of anti-nuclear campaigners. The students were brought to Australia by a group called Earthwalkers, who run the Fukushima Support Project. The project organises recreational trips out of Fukushima to support children who have experienced the trauma and ongoing effects of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. So let's start by hearing what two of those students, Moy and Karen, had to say about their experience of the disaster. Hello, my name is Karen. I'm 16 years old. I came from Fukushima, Japan. I'm going to talk about Great East Japan earthquake. After the big earthquake and tsunami, there was an accident at the nuclear power plant in Fukushima, which was 60 kilometers from the city of Fukushima, where I live. Radioactivity had also increased in my city. In Fukushima, I wore a mask, long sleeve shirt, and long trousers all year long to protect, uh, to protect myself from radioactivity. My mother told me to refrain from going out, and it was not possible to run around outside. Sports events weren't held for two years after the earthquake and they were held only in the morning after the third year. Moreover, we weren't able to swim in the pool for the same reason. This lasted for three years, and I came to be able to swim when I was in fifth grade, but my mother knew the danger of radioactivity and made me study indoors without practicing swimming in the pool. The food from Fukushima Prefecture was raised in the midst of radioactivity, so my mother didn't buy it. The school lunch, which I had eaten before the earthquake, was also suspended. A number of victims have been evacuated to my area because the place where I live wasn't badly damaged, and apartments and temporary houses for the refugees were made. Even so, there weren't so many refugees to live in them, so there were people who spent a long time at the shelter. The shelter was mainly the school was a coarse thing, partitioned by cardboard boxes. It was a white but very cold place. There wasn't enough food. People went without talking up, taking a bath, and the lack of privacy Privacy must have been an extraordinarily meaningful experience. Still, compared to the people who had died in the tsunami, I think we could realize how fortunate we were. I came to feel that I should not take for granted that water comes out if the faucet when I turn it. 
that I can easily but buy products in the stores and that daily life without uneasiness is usual. The Great East Japan earthquake gave me a shock, and at the same time, it taught me the blessing of living this way. Hello, my name is Mao. I came from Fukushima in Japan. So, I'm going to start my speech. It's been seven years since the March 2011 earthquake and tsunami. I'm here to talk about what people in Fukushima are thinking now. Some people are forgetting about those difficult days. Others are getting used to their new life sitting with ch challenges such as radiation issues. These radiation issues caused by the nuclear power plant in Fukushima should never be forgotten. We should keep telling our stories about those terrible times. I joined this program to improve myself and also educate people about my home area. Through discussions and speeches like this, I want to try to tell the stories of the people in Fukushima, then and now. I'll never forget the shocking events of that day. At the time, I was nine years old, was in the third grade of elementary school. I was at my friend's house, and we were the only ones in, in the house. Suddenly, the house started to shake violently. Bookshelves fell over, cups and plates were thrown to the floor. We took cover under a desk and cried uncontrollably. The next day, a nuclear reactor at the Fukushima nuclear power plant exploded. I was only nine years old, so I didn't really comprehend what was happening. News about the earthquake, tsunami, fire, and radiation was on every day. I didn't know the exact nature of all the problems, but I definitely knows, knew something terrible had happened and was continuing to happen. Three days after the disaster hit, my parents thought it would be safer to go to Tokyo. So we went to there and stayed with my grandparents. When we came back to Fukushima, life was very different than it had been before the disaster. Radiation is especially scary because we can't see it. So my parents checked the radiation levels with a radiation counter in order to make sure that we were in safe areas. To be extra sure, we didn't eat any local food that wasn't also 100% tested for safety. There were many rules at the time, too. Children weren't allowed to, uh, allowed to play outside. We were encouraged to wear masks when we did go outside. Soon after, cleaning started at places of higher radiation levels. Parks and other areas where kids hung out were cleaned fast. The radiation levels went down and so the rules were relaxed. Life was getting back to normal. Today, the food in Fukushima is all safe, but we still check for radiation just, on, just in case. We eat Fukushima food without any reservations. At places where many people gather, like parks, stations, and city halls, there are radiation counters. These are to keep us safe, of course. There are also reminders of March 11th. There were many challenges we had, 
but we got a lot of support that kept our spirits high. Though it was a terrible disaster, we were able to learn to appreciate everyday life more. Six years later, it seems life is back to normal for most people. But for others, life will never be the same. Whether they lost loved one, lost their home, or are forced to evacuate permanently because of radiation, life is very different. That was Moi and Karen, two students who are part of Earthwalkers Fukushima Support Project. You can learn more about that project at earthwalkers.jp. That's E A R T H W A L K E R S. JP. You're listening to The Radioactive Show. Next, we'll hear an interview by Andy Payne, who is speaking with former Green Senator Scott Ludlam. Could you start by introducing yourself? Uh, look, I will if you will. Uh, my name is Scott Ludlam, and I'm a former Australian Green Senator representing Western Australia. Uh, my name is Andy Payne, uh, sometimes activist, uh, journalist, disability support worker, etc., <laughs> Um, so, Scott, most people would know you as a politician, but before then you were somebody involved in grassroots activism. Can you tell us some of the things that you were involved in pre-Parliament? Okay, so I guess I started out um, doing anti-nuclear campaigning in the late 1990s, and that was the issue that kind of really grabbed me out of my former life and threw me down a, a pretty different path. And because the activist community in Western Australia is pretty tight-knit, I fairly quickly got drawn into forest campaigning because that was really peaking at the time that I got involved, and then the anti-war movement. So you were involved in that for some time. Um, The move into a more uh, parliamentary party politics direction, was that something that happened gradually or was it an immediate kind of jump? No, it was gradual. So in the first instance, just discovering that in the little groups that I was working with, it was the Greens who would let us thrash their photocopiers, teach us how to write parliamentary questions, show us how the mining industry database worked so that we could track where they were going. And they're basically just a practical help. And then after the 2001 state election in WA, I went to work in state politics, um, advising Robin Chapel MLC as a staffer. Two years then in federal politics, um, uh, in Rachel Seawitt's office, and then threw my hat over the wall at the end of 2006 to, to see if people were interested in, uh, in me as a candidate. So I guess it was kind of a sideways progression into electoral politics. What made you decide that that was a good way to spend your energy? Uh, to my mind, we're at our most effective when we're combining autonomous social movements that don't have political party affiliation and and aren't necessarily directly concerned with electoral politics, when we're combining that energy with with legislatures, with lawmaking apparatus such as they are, and the, the changes that I saw being most effective in the world were where those two groups of people were working together. Mm. And so was it that that your skills seemed particularly aligned to going down that route or was it just that somebody needed to do it uh, definitely wasn't a skill based thing I was completely hopeless you know I studied graphic design which is an entirely honourable profession but didn't really prepare me 
for staffing and advising as a member of state parliament. So, no, I mean, kind of had to build up that skill set from the ground up. Some of it is qualified by experience just by doing the job, and some of it's a bit more formal, you know, going back to uni um, and studying something a little bit more relevant, and also just spending spending time around people who are really good at it. So getting elected to the Federal Senate, obviously a massive achievement. Did you feel that it then uh, gained you uh, influence and places that you didn't have before? What were those gains? Uh, I think the gains to working in that environment, I guess they're twofold. Firstly, you get access to all the tools of Parliament. So you can get on committees, you can confront um, really senior members of the public service in estimates committees you can ask direct questions of the executive you know of the attorney general adam can in in the house of representatives can ask questions of the prime minister face to face and that's not nothing like having access to those tools is important and having the ability to vote as part of a team one way or another is also important the other thing that it gives you though is a measure of profile and of a you know of a soapbox people will because you're in a position like in a really obvious position to do something about the things that you care about, uh, you're more likely to get a microphone chucked under your nose and people ask your view. Your voice will carry a little bit further. And so I guess it's those two roles, one of advocacy and one of of the legislative role that made it a bit different to what I was doing before. Were there losses that you felt came from moving from a grassroots activist place into that sphere? Yeah, 100%. You lose some things. You lose a measure of autonomy. So you're firstly, in a physical way, you're constrained by the parliamentary sitting calendar, by where the committees take you, and and by the constraints also of working within a party political system. I didn't feel that as much as probably others in parliament because I was working with the Greens with a group of people who whose values I really shared. But <clears throat> nonetheless, you're still kind of chained into a schedule that's not of your making. When parliament sits you there no matter what. And this, the second thing, I guess, is that you also have to be very responsive, that suddenly your to-do list is going to be written by other people. Um, you're there doing a job in a representative capacity. It's not just about what you want to do. You have to respond. If the government bowls up a bill that's in your area, you have to deal with that, particularly if you're in balance of power and if your vote matters. So that, I guess, was the second constraint, was realising that a lot of the time it's difficult to get your agenda out front as opposed to reacting to other people's. Mm. So in your time in with the Greens, at different times they had the balance of power in the Senate and even a hung parliament uh, with the, a balance of power. Was that all it's cracked up to be in terms of power? Oh, I don't know what it's cracked up to be, but it was a tremendous opportunity to be able to to block stuff or to be able to propose things and occasionally carry a vote. So yeah, like it's a really big deal if you're if you're able to kind of cobble together a crossbench an opposition majority for something that you really care about, you can do a lot in that place. And uh, you know, we worked with the government when it was a Labour government. It's a little bit easy because we have a little bit more in common to be able to do things that I'm still really proud of. Um, around the National Broadband Network, around housing affordability, around public transport and a couple other things. So it's not the same as being in government, but being able to influence things um, by measure is still 
you still feel like you, you, you know, figured that it's worth getting up for it in the morning. Uh, once you're in the Senate and you're spending a lot of time in Canberra and obviously a lot of time like uh, reading Senate submissions or legislation or whatever, did you feel removed from the grassroots community that had sort of got you in there? I just tried to make sure that I never lost touch with the people who'd put me in there. So um, particularly in anti-nuclear and peace campaigning, it was a real privilege to be able to represent those views in Parliament. So I just made sure that I was really accessible either to people um, doing that work when they would come through Canberra and wanted to meet with us or to be able to go to meetings around the country and make sure that I was properly involved in campaigns. Um, it's not the same as being an autonomous activist, obviously. It's really different. But I i mean, I'll let other people be the judge, I suppose, of how effective that was. But I felt like I was able, for the most part, to be able to stay in touch with crew that I'd been working with beforehand and try and stay relevant and useful for them. Mm. Was it useful uh, in the Senate having those links with those movements? It wasn't useful, it was absolutely essential. If you lose those links, we're kind of nothing. There wouldn't be any point to us as a political party. You know, if you want to deal with a political party that's more or less completely divorced and disengaged with with social movements on the issues that I really care about, just, you know, you might as well just join the Labour Party, to be quite honest. So for us, if we lose contact with those social movements and those grassroots organisations... Uh, there'd, be, there'd kind of be no reason for us to stick around. It's interesting on that question of keeping your identity. In the Senate, you always had this image as a bit of a rebel in the Senate, you know, asking questions to George Brandis or uh, sticking up for kind of causes that didn't weren't popular with either of the major parties. Uh, do you... Was that a course that you chose to take against sort of, I guess, fitting in a bit more and hoping to get it more of a seat at the table of power? I, in a way, I felt like I already had the seat. Like, once you're, once you're in there, it's up to you how you decide to play it. So I don't feel like I adopted a particular persona. If anything, I just figured I'd be me. And that would probably, um, you know, if you're trying to play some kind of role or be somebody else in there, you're probably not going to last all that long. There is some perception that the Greens as a party are moving more towards, I guess, a mainstream uh, acceptability. Uh, is, is that fair and is that a good or bad thing for the Greens to do? I think maybe it's a bit mischaracterised and I think, if anything, what Richard identified when he took up the leadership was that the mainstream is moving towards us. So if you take any of the issues that you would consider to have been radical say 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Things like marriage equality, strong action on climate change, promoting renewable energy, phasing out fossil fuels, um, uh, an anti-nuclear stance even. It's not as though the Greens' point of view on those things is at odds with the public, but it's still the case that other parties try to paint us as being extreme. So I guess the point that we're trying to make is um, if we're mainstream, it's because the views that we've been advocating for, for 20 years in and out of Parliament are slowly moving towards the centre of politics. And I think other parties are struggling to adapt to that. And, you know, marriage equality is a really interesting example. When John Howard changed the definition of marriage in 2004, 
the Labour Party voted with him. And we were kind of stuck out by ourselves on a bit of a limb being painted as extremists for supporting the notion of marriage equality. Now it's mainstream. We had to wait 13 years for the rest of the parliament to show up and arrive at that position. But some things are worth waiting for. And I think we're in the same boat on issues like climate change. Um, my fervent hope is that we end up in the same position on issues of, of, of peace and nuclear disarmament. But obviously we've got a way to go yet. Were you happy with what you achieved in your time in the Senate? There's always more. There's always a... No, I mean, to be honest, there's a bunch of stuff that I wish we'd been able to do. Um, I'm happy with, with a lot of the achievements and there's, you know, there's plenty of things that I'm really proud of, but you always look at the ones that you lost where people got hurt because you weren't able to prevent something and kind of wish that we'd been able to do a bit better. Do you feel personally that you walk out uh, with, like, proud of your holding on to your integrity? I think, like in my own self, I feel that way, but it's also up for others to judge. It's You don't want to walk around proclaiming that you have integrity. It's something that is kind of recognised from from without or not. But I don't feel like I ever participated in a vote on something that I didn't believe in. Um, and that's something, that's something that's good, because you're always worried about getting put in an impossible position where whatever you do, you're going to sell somebody out. And I, I never felt like I got put in that position, which is maybe is kind of a fortunate thing in politics. So one of your uh, most famous contributions in your time in the Senate was the speech that you gave to Tony Abbott. Um, one of the interesting things about this speech, it was very much a, a social media sensation and uh, went viral. And that's a, a bit of a different question of, does uh, having something that is shared a lot on social media, does that translate into real change? And as somebody who's been a, a viral sensation yourself, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think for me it demonstrated the power of the audience. You know, and that's a new phenomenon. If you're in a broadcast world, the audience isn't particularly powerful. If you're sitting at home watching TV or reading the newspaper day after day, you don't really have a lot of power. Um, one of the things I find interesting about social media is that it's an... Is, whether you're successful or not is an entirely audience-generated phenomenon because nobody sees that speech unless it's shared. I can't, you can't force a lot of people to watch your thing on YouTube. The only way a lot of people get to see it is if it's being shared. So for me, that moment wasn't really about a reasonably ordinary seven-minute speech. It was actually about the, the power of the audience to pick something up and pass it on. Mm. It certainly was the right thing at the right time, I guess, for how people were feeling. Yeah, and that's just a matter of luck. Actually, I've done things in there that I'm vastly prouder of than a speech telling Tony Abbott to go fuck himself that I'm, that I'm vastly more proud of and put a lot more work into and feel like were more important contributions. But the fact is that's the one that the audience thought was worth passing on, and so they did. With your experience... Uh, in Parliament and in grassroots activism, what would be your advice for young, talented, idealistic people who want to change the world? Uh, my advice would be don't take advice from politicians and my advice would be that it's possible, that these things are all possible, that we don't know if we're going to succeed or not, but that there's a lot of power in the not knowing. We don't know that we're going to fail either. And... Um, 
that there's really viable pathways to change outside formal politics as there are inside. And that really social movements are the more important end um, of that equation. Like all the most powerful social movements throughout history, not just in Australia but elsewhere, were led from outside parliament. Politicians are the last ones to the party. So the work that we do outside, whether it's in peace or um, equal rights or land rights or industrial relations or social justice, whatever our work is... um, the most powerful campaigns are the ones that start outside the building and then you get it to a certain point where it's safe for a critical mass of politicians to take up the mantle and pass the laws and, and, and you get changed that way. And I feel like, if anything, the challenge for us is to change the makeup of Parliament so that the social movements don't have to work so damn hard, you know, to make it easier to get these basic things done. So we need both. Um, I don't feel like we should accept such low expectations on our politicians and have to fight them for human rights, for social justice and for environmental protections every single day. There's countries around the world where populations don't have to treat the government as an adversary and I feel like we shouldn't have such low expectations on our politicians, which means we've got to change a bunch of them out. You know, There's a bunch of people in there who have been in there way too long and it's time they just went out and um, planted some trees or did something different. And what do you have planned now, Scott? You're not, unlike some of those other uh, dual citizen politicians, you're not planning on going back to the Senate. What are your plans now? Um, Well, to be honest, I want to learn more about some of the things I was working on and I want to do a bit more, maybe a little bit more deeper thinking about some of the things that I care about and about how social change happens, how sometimes we're successful and sometimes we're not. It's not always easy, I guess, in Parliament, you're continually reacting to events of the moment where I feel like doing a bit more research, a bit more thinking about how social movements succeed or fail and what governments and corporations do to try and block the work that we try and do. That was Scott Ludlam speaking with Andy Payne. My name is AC and you're listening to The Radioactive Show. The show was produced in Nam, Melbourne, at 3CR, on the lands of the Rwandri peoples, and we recognise that their sovereignty has never been ceded. Our show is distributed across these stolen lands known as Australia on the Community Radio Network. On today's show, you've, you've heard from two students from Fukushima who spoke about their experiences of nuclear disaster, as well as Andy Payne speaking with former Green Senator Scott Budlam. Thanks to Corey from Earth Matters, who shared this recording with us. Before I sign off, I have a quick community announcement from the ACE Nuclear Free Collective. We're happy to announce that there'll be a radioactive exposure tour happening in 2018, from March 30th to April 8th. Please keep an eye on the ACE website for more details. www.melbournefo.org.au backslash nuclear underscore free. Thanks for listening. You'll find us online at 3cr.org.au backslash radioactive, and that's three the digit. And you can get in touch with us by looking us up on Facebook or via email at radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. And again, that's three the digit. So thanks again for listening. Before you go, I wanted to share with you this great track by Glitter Rats, Weevils in the Flower. Here's to a nuclear-free future.